We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. I'm glad you're with us once more. We uh, turn to this part of the New Testament and going over the next few weeks, as you can see from the front of the outline, if you uh, have one of them, you'll see it at the front of the outline that we're working through Colossians over the next uh, several weeks. We uh, I need to apologise to you that I will be dashing after today's study, usually around till two or quarter past, but uh, I've got an appointment down at uh, Redfern Newtown, so... Uh, I will not be greeting you at the end. Uh, But we come to this terrific passage that Andrew has just read out to us and we start off by just asking the obvious question, well, what is Colossae or where is Colossae and who are the Colossians? Colossae was a city. The Colossians are the people who lived there. Funny words, aren't they? They, The kinds of words you find in the Bible. But it uh, was fairly obvious enough in the first century. What we know of the city and the church is that the city itself was in Turkey, what we would call Turkey, what was called Asia Minor uh, in a previous generation. In the time of the New Testament, it was called Asia. It was just that whole area that we have Turkey. And the city itself was east of Ephesus, which was the main city of the whole area, up a little river called the Lycus River. It was about 16 kilometres from Uh, Laodicea, another city that is referred to in this book, and it was for many years the main uh, road junction on the way out of Ephesus heading eastwards. However, the Romans were very big on on road building and they built a bypass and the consequence of a bypass for a small rural city is that it just went into uh, disrepair, fell down and in fact there's nothing there now. If you want to, except for some ruins, it's been deserted for many centuries. The church was founded by a man called Epaphroditus. Epaphras, who is referred to us here several times. Epaphras is one of the most delightful minor characters in the Bible. One of my daughters has always wanted to name one of her children Epaphras. Uh, So far we've had four sons and no Epaphrases, and I may say the grandfather is relieved. It's not your everyday name, Epaphras or Epaphroditus. I don't know what an Aussie would do to it. I suppose they'd call him Paffy or something like that. It's not a good name for today, but he's a lovely person. You see him there in verse 7, just as you learnt it from the Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's the one who took the gospel to them. He himself was a Colossian. Just turn over the page to chapter 4, two pages to chapter 4, and you see down there in verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12, on page 1186, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So Epaphras took the gospel to them. Paul didn't take the gospel to them. This is not a city, this is not a church that Paul planted. The city actually heard the gospel when Paul was preaching in Ephesus. Paul stayed in Ephesus for a couple of years and when he was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, 
Then all of Asia heard the gospel. We read uh, in uh, Acts chapter 19, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's a lovely little passage in Acts 19 because it's really about the cathedral Bible study. Paul was uh, in the city of Ephesus and each day he taught the Bible at lunchtime. Uh, He didn't have a cathedral, he used a hall of a school. Uh, The schoolmaster's name was Tyrannus, uh, as in tyrant. Um, It's not my favourite schoolmaster's name either, I may say. But for two years he taught the Bible there and as a result of him teaching the Bible there, the word of God spread all through Asia. Now it came about through an Epaphras kind of character, taking it to his hometown of Colossae. Paul also continues to care for this church he'd never met, continues to pray for it, to write to it, and to strive for them. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, to see Paul's ministry. Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen my face. Verse 5, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul was greatly enamoured with this church that he'd never met. He'd only heard good things about it, and so he writes this letter to them. Now, the church was in good order, as you can see from verse 5 that I just read to you. This is not a letter that is written to fix a problem. It's not that the church has gone off the rails and he now needs to bring it back onto the rails. He rejoices to hear the good order that they're in. There is nothing that we know of it that is wrong. He's writing a letter of encouragement to Christians. A letter of encouragement to Christians that he'd never met. People who are complete strangers to him. But in that regard, he's also writing a circular letter. For going back to uh, chapter 4... We see in verse 16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from the Laodicea. That is, some of the letters that Paul writes, like the letters of the Corinthians, there are problems in Corinth. And he's writing to those specific problems in Corinth. But the the letter to the Colossians, he's just writing to a group of Christians he's never met. Like the church in Laodicea. And he writes one letter to one and another letter to the other and he says, when you get them and you've read them, swap them over and read the other one as well. For this is a letter to Christians and therefore it's a letter to Sydney. The key reason for his writing this letter is the great transfer. The Colossians had experienced it, Paul had experienced it. And it lies at the base of everything about Paul and the Colossians and what they have in common. Paul writes about it, but what is it? You see it in the end of our reading today, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, we all live in the domain of darkness. Verse 21 talks about us as being alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The rest of the Bible teaches us that we are born into sinfulness. 
to some extent we don't even notice it because it is here all around us all the time. We never teach our children to tell lies. We don't have to. They know how to do it by instinct and intuition. I've never ever heard a parent telling their child to tell lies. You don't even have to explain how to tell lies. We just know how to do it. It is of our character. It is of our nature. And yet when you ask people, do you like lies being told to you? They always say no. I mean, we hate it when people tell us lies, don't we? And so on the very basic principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then you know that telling lies is a bad thing. It's a wrong thing. Yet we all do it. And we all do it by nature and by instinct. From the littlest of children we do it. We live in a world that is morally corrupt. We live in the domain, the kingdom, that is not our own in righteousness, but the kingdom that is the domain of darkness. But God has now delivered us, he says there in verse 13. He has delivered us out of it. How has he delivered us out of it? Well, by the death and resurrection of his son, although he doesn't spell that out here. He's delivered us out of it because he's reconciled the enemies by the death of his son. I mean, just go over the page to the top of the next page, verse 21, and you see chapter 1, verse 21, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here we were living in enmity and hostility and anger and Christ is going to present us pure and spotless and holy. How? By his death on the cross. And he has delivered us. And so you see, back in chapter 1, verse 13, 14, talking about this transfer, he has delivered us. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption is the word of freeing slaves. We don't use the word redemption much now unless you go to pawnbrokers regularly and then you'll know about redeeming your, your, redeeming your property. You've given it to the pawnbroker, he's lent you money, he's charged you incredible amounts of interest, but you've worked hard, got your money, got your interest, you go back to the pawnbroker and you redeem your guitar. Uh, or your saxophone, or your trumpet, or your hi-fi, or your binoculars, the kinds of things that you see in pawnbrokers' shops. They are held in captivity by the pawnbroker until someone can pay the price to redeem them. We have been redeemed because we were in this domain of darkness. We were under the control of evil, but we have been redeemed by our sins being paid for. Our sins being forgiven. But not only has he delivered, not only has he redeemed us, but we haven't been redeemed to go on living in the pawnbroker's shop. We have been redeemed and transferred into another kingdom. Transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son, into the kingdom of his beloved son. You see it there in verse 13. The Colossians, like the rest of humanity, lived in the domain of darkness. But God, by redeeming them through the death of Jesus Christ, has transferred them and transferred all who love the Lord Jesus Christ, lifted us out of one domain and put us in the other. That is, Christianity is not something you're born into. 
the domain of darkness. You're born into that. Christianity is something that you've been rescued. Christianity is something that you've been chosen to be rescued out of the domain of darkness and transferred into. It's not all that hard for us to understand because by and large we're a nation of migrants. Even if we ourselves didn't migrate, our parents or our grandparents did, we all know the time. We can all date the time unless you're one of our indigenous people. You can all date the time and know the time when your first ancestor arrived here in Australia. You can look back to the 1940s or to the 1880s or you can look back to the day when you did it yourself in the 1970s. You can say, I, we used to live there, but we now live here. Well, so it is with Christians. They can be pointing to the fact that we used to be that. We used to be in the domain of darkness, but God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is, Christianity is not something you're born into. It's something that you're born again into. It's a new start. Now, given the the common Christian experience of Paul and the Colossians, his prayer starts off with thanksgiving, verse 3. We always thank God. Prayer is always associated with thanksgiving in the Bible. We, we, whenever we're asking God for anything, we should always do it in the context of thanking God. Many years ago, I was taught, and I've been very thankful to have been taught, to pray to God as my Father in heaven and to commence every prayer with thanksgiving. So my just verbal mannerisms in prayer these days can't help myself, thanks to the good teaching of my teachers, is to start off our Father in heaven, thank you. Then I've got to stop and think what I'm going to thank about but there's always things to thank God for in any and every circumstance. And before I start asking for things, it's a wonderful thing to start thanking God for what I already have. It moves you from being a whinging grumbler, doesn't it? When you've got to start with thanksgiving. And so he starts with thanksgiving. Ever since he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not their faith, but their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have faith Faith is an impossible thing to have. You've always got to have faith in something. Just faith itself doesn't exist. Faith always has an object. You believe something, you trust something, you rely upon something. Uh, Rely, depend, trust, they mean exactly the same as faith. You can't just have rely, can you? You can't just have trust. You've got to trust something, someone, somebody, some word. So it is with faith. Their faith is now in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not only faith, it's also their love. Their love for all the saints. Uh, Saints are not people who have got ST in front of their name or wearing long uh, dressing gowns or in stained glass windows. Uh, Saints are Christians. They're people who have been set aside by God. They're people who have been transferred out of darkness into his kingdom. All Christians are saints and all saints are Christians. And especially at this time, there was great love for the Jewish Christians that dominated the thinking of these people who lived in Turkey. It's something extraordinary that was happening, that they loved all the saints. For having been lifted out of the darkness into their son, they came to trust, have faith in their son, but also to love in a new and strange way, to love all God's people, To love, verse 8, in the spirit. 
For this is the sign of being one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus himself said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, the sign of being a Christian is not a cross around your neck. It's, it's, not a, it's not a dove that you might wear in your lapel. The sign of being a Christian is the love that you have for others. It's genuineness. It's integrity. It's reality. That is the sign of being the Christian. But how does it come about? Well, it's come about because of hope, verse 5. Because of hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, and of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Uh, hope is, is expectation in the Bible. You can tell it's like that because notice what this hope is. It's laid up for you in heaven. It's like a bank account. It's there already, waiting for you to access It's like buying the Christmas present now and putting it in the wardrobe and showing the child that it is there waiting for you. I was offered a box yesterday, which is a really classy box, and uh, which is empty, but it's a really classy box, and uh, encouraged to tell my wife that it was her present waiting. It's such a good-looking box. She will live with happiness and expectation for months. And I said, yes, but when I actually give it to her, the months of expectation and the joy that she's had will turn into something so powerfully bitter and unhappy, it's not worth doing. You've got to have something that is worth having laid up for you. They have heaven laid up for them. And it's that expectation of that heaven, that certainty that heaven is there waiting for me. They have faith in Jesus and love for all the saints because of it. The news, the certainty, the expectation of heaven changes the way people think and act here on earth. Eat, drink and be merry, says some, for tomorrow we die. If your only expectation and hope is the grave, is the crematorium flu, eat, drink and be merry, what else is there to do? But our hope is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity, rejoicing in him, being loved by him and loving him, serving him. Our hope is in heaven. This is not the time to eat, drink and be merry. This is the time to live with him and for him. Trust Jesus and love one another. Because of the hope laid up for heaven, they have faith in Jesus and love for one another. And where did they get this hope from? How do they know of tomorrow's hope? Well, they heard it in the word of the truth. It's the receipt of the the bank book that gives me the hope. I remember as a small child being putting money into the school bank account and they gave me this little book. It was just as well it was a nice book, otherwise I would have asked for my money back. I thought it was a very poor exchange at the time. But they assured me and told me that because of the book and the numbers written in the book, my money was there. I could pick it up any time I wanted to. Now we have receipts and now we have computer screens that tell us of our what is laid up for us, what treasure is available to us. Meager treasure for many of us, but it's there, laid up with my name inscribed upon it. I can get it. I trust the message. 
I make decisions on the basis of that message. I make purchases on the basis of the message that there is laid up for me that money. So the message of the word of the truth tells me, assures me, declares to me, promises me the heavenly life with God. How do I know this truth? Because I heard it. It was spoken to me in words. Because verse 7, I learnt it. That's how it came. The assurance was not a bolt out of the blue. It was not a strange inner glow. The message came in words. And yet it is a supernatural message because the gospel bears fruit and grows throughout the world. The gospel message of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is about the judgment to come and about the grace of God, the forgiveness that is coming. And it bears fruit. For around the world it is growing, for it is living and active and dynamic. In the whole world of Paul's day, people were being converted all across Asia as he spoke in Ephesus. And to this day, millions upon millions of people love the Lord Jesus Christ and his people because of this message. The gospel message they heard in verse 6 and understood in verse 6 and and learnt in verse 7 is the grace of God in truth the very generosity of God. For what is our future? What may we hope for tomorrow? It's more than just die. But in death, what do we hope for? If we live in the domain of darkness, then punishment is what we receive. Those who think, let's eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die, hope like mad that tomorrow we die and that there is no more. But we know there is more, for God will bring justice. But the message of the gospel is not just the justice of God, much more importantly for us, it's the pardon instead of punishment. It's the mercy, it's the forgiveness, it is the grace of God. The gospel promises the grace of God and therefore I am promised forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have faith in him. And because I have faith in him, I will love all his saints. And therefore, Paul gives thanks for the transfer to have taken place. So says Paul, verse 9, since we've heard of your transferred state, we haven't stopped praying for you. Now, what do we pray for? We pray that they be filled with the knowledge. That's first and foremost, that they might be filled with the knowledge. Do not underestimate the importance of knowing Do not put Christianity over against knowing. As so many atheists do, it's very sad to hear Christians ever do it. For you come to faith in Jesus by what you know about his death and resurrection. And as you come to faith in Jesus, so you grow in knowledge of God and learn more of him. So his first prayer is that they might be filled with knowledge, not just knowledge in general, but knowledge of God's will. Knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Understanding God, God's way. And the purpose of this knowledge is to walk in a way, in a particular way, the manner worthy of the Lord, a manner that pleases God. I grow in my knowledge of God so that I might know how to please God. Sometimes people seek to please me by giving me a cup of coffee with milk in it. I don't have milk in my coffee. If you know me, you'd know how to give me my coffee that would please me. As it is, I will drink it, but I don't like it. 
You thought you would please me, but you didn't because you didn't know me. You want to please God, you need to know God. Now, what is the way that is fully pleasing to him? Four elements to it. Bearing fruit in every good work. Why? Well, because we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2. Created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So we're filled with the knowledge of God in order to walk God's way, which is to bear fruit in good works. Secondly, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's circular, I know, but it's not really circular, it's more a spiral. As I know about God more, I will do more of what God wants. As I do more of what God wants, I will know God more. It just grows, it feeds around on itself. As we know God, we know his works and so therefore are being strengthened. Being strengthened by what and for what? Being strengthened by the power of God, the mighty, glorious power of God. For what? To endure. Not so that we'll be victorious, not so that we'll be famous, not so that we will vanquish our foes, but that we will with strength endure with patience and joy, for we still live in the domain of darkness. You see, we've been transferred spiritually out of the domain of darkness, spiritually into the kingdom of his son, but we still live in Sydney, which is still the domain of darkness. The fourth element of our change, the prayer, is that we will, with this patient joy, be empowered by God to give thanks for everything. But especially, of course, for the transport that has happened to us. Thanking God for the hope that is laid up in heaven for us. Thanking God that we can continue to live persecuted and suffering, uncomfortable in a world of sin, but continue to live for him. And so we thank God, verses 12 to 13, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption. Two quick questions for you today, friends. Number one, have you been transferred? It's the first question, isn't it? You're still living in the home country or have you migrated to the heavenly one yet? If you're in any doubt about that, just jot it on the blue card, the contact card. So I'd like to talk to someone about it. Just, just write the word transfer. I'd like to find out about it because that's the biggest and most important transfer of all. Second question. If you have been transferred, then prayerfully, are you growing like Paul prayed for the Colossians to grow? Growing in the knowledge of him, bearing fruit in every good work, empowered by him to endure with joy, always giving thanks for the one who has transferred us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection by which we can be moved out of our natural state of darkness into the glory of your kingdom, the kingdom of your Son. We pray, Father, that each one of us might know the forgiveness of sins and have that sure hope of heaven laid up for us, the grace and mercy and pardon that we don't deserve but that he has won for us, so that we might now live with our faith in Jesus and our love towards all his people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.